You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast, where you're going to hear a valuable hunting-based conversation that's tailored for us Southern folk. If you love what we do and would like to support Southern Ground Hunting, you can visit Patreon.com forward slash Southern Ground Hunting, or you can click on the link in the show notes below. We'd love for you to join the Southern Ground Hunting community today. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Southern Ground Hunting. You can also support us by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps more than you know, and we greatly appreciate it. And now, let's get to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. Joined here by my buddy Matthew Reeves and my other buddy Brett Mashburn. So Matt, you are officially, it seems like you've talked to me several times, like officially you are tired of trying to think about deer yes. and think about turkeys at the same time. I was wondering how long it was going to take you. It Well, it took, you know, my first hunt, but today I actually kind of have had deer on my mind today. Uh, I've left a cell camera out and two of my target bucks keep showing, have showed up like four different times today. Um, one, one's completely shed and then one is still holding one side. So I'm thinking about trying to go find a shed or two, you know, during the week, but no, I'm, I'm full blown turkeys as far as what I want to do. Um, so that's, that's been tough, but we're, we're enjoying it, enjoying the season. Um, and just trying to, trying to make it to deer season now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I don't I don't feel like I'm trying to make it to deer season. I feel like I'm pretty well set on how much time do I actually have to turkey hunt and how can I take full advantage of that time. Um, yeah. But this is not a turkey hunting podcast. We have a turkey hunting podcast. It's called Limb Hanger. Um, so shameless plug for that. Going to have a, a new episode rolling out every single week. Uh, but in this episode, we're talking with Brett Mashburn of South Alabama. And uh, we're going to talk about ground hunting, some uh, rattling tactics, some things that you're working on, Brett, some, just some, some cool stuff. Now, people may remember, I kind of pulled you, you were kind of like my wild card in our draft that we did. Um, yeah. I, 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 I feel like I shocked the world 
when I when I said, "How about some Brett Mashburn?" and the guys were like, "I mean, isn't that like one of your friends? Like, isn't that one of Walt's buddies?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, here's the thing: Brett is an extremely effective whitetail hunter. He thinks about whitetails 365, and he is incredibly effective at killing them in pretty tough areas to kill whitetails. And not only that, but in the last couple of years, been really focusing on um, doing it from the ground, getting in tight, in thick, um, places where you can't put a tree, and also rattling, r- rattling for bucks. Like, rattling. Y'all seen, like Texas. Have y'all seen, uh, have y'all seen, I think it's Earl Dibbles Jr. when he's like, rattle for bucks. Somebody listening to this got that. And they're rolling right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know who that is. Y'all gotta, y'all gotta look up Earl Dibbles Jr. Oh, Lord. Have you not, have you seen that, Brett? I have. He says, uh, he's basically, Earl Dibbles Jr. is the one, Matt, who came up with the whole, yee yee. Oh, okay. That's, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty funny. They're pretty dang funny. He says, I'm, I'm Earl Dibbles Jr. And I'm a country boy. Um, anyways. I have to, I have to dig into it, it. Yeah. If y'all haven't listened or watched Earl Dibbles Jr. on YouTube, you can, he's got songs on Spotify. It's, uh, it's a country singer. I don't know why my name is, the name is slipping me right now. I'm going to remember it at some point. Uh, uh, Granger Smith. That's who it is. It's kind of like his little alter ego. Wow. Okay, I, I know what you're talking about now. What a rabbit trail that was. Um, but we're going to talk about rattling for bucks. Brett's been doing that, <laughs> been doing it incredibly effectively uh, in the last couple of years. But Brett, I, I feel like it would be a uh, disservice if we didn't at least share a little bit about our hunt together in Florida this last weekend. Um. <laughs> Who do you want to start it? You can start it, Brett, because because I think it's fair that that the the audience knows your perspective of the whole thing. Then I'll I'll ask some questions, so so it's not you know y- y'all two fighting each other. Well, I mean, to start it off, it's it's uh, on Thursday. I roll up, Parker sleeping in his truck. I have to wake him up. Get them going, you know. It's not. It's not false. I was sleeping in there. <laughs> but no, we 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 talked for a little bit. And went down to a listening spot, and Parker heard a gobble. I don't. I don't even think I've heard it till like the third time it gobbled. I barely hear. It. I have horrible hearing when it comes to hearing gobbles. Or, or hearing, hearing or, people. Or hearing whispers. People whisper from six <laughs> yards away in a tree. <laughs> but um but this turkey i mean he gobbled early probably one of the earliest uh gobbles i've ever heard you know well before normal um like usually i hear crows usually when i start to hear crows is when i start to hear gobble and this is way before that so we were able to sneak in pretty tight i think we got 120 yards from the bird just my guess somewhere yeah, around that area 100 i would say 120 or closer maybe a little bit closer than that yeah and we almost stopped at a couple of trees We're like no nah, let's go a little further 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 and we got to a end of this little knob so the whole um 
this whole hunt, you know, I was going to be the shooter. Parker was going to film. And so he sat back on the knob and let me go down just in front of him about six yards or so. So when I'm set up on my tree, Parker's over my right shoulder and he's up the hill for me a little bit. And this bird's straight away from us, kind of have a thicket between between uh, him and where we're set up. And there's like a little land bridge. There's a little open spot that if he flies down, he's either going to fly in this road or he's going he's gonna to walk through it to get to us. So we're set up for that. And we get set up for a while, this bird's just gobbling his head off, just, just hammering. And Parker does this like little super soft call, and I'm like, I was like, okay, he's getting his mouth all warmed up, you know. <laughs> I was like, I was like, That's cool. And uh, we're sitting there hanging out, and he's like, he knows we're here. And I said, he knows we're here. I said, I could barely even hear you. I mean, he does this to me, it almost sounded like a like a little bubble club, like beating, a uh, little purge, these whines and whistles, how soft they are. That's how soft this tree yelp was. Mm-hmm. And the gobbler didn't respond to him initially. Maybe 20 seconds later, he may have gobbled. So I'm like, mm, there's no way this turkey heard him. <laughs> but, <laughs> what did I tell you? you? Know, I, I'm here. I'm here to learn something. So we're gonna do what he says because I'm not a great turkey. I'm not a great turkey hunter. So I was like, well, okay, we'll see what happens. We're gonna do what Parker wants to do. Oh, he's sitting there. Everything's going good. He's staying in the limb. It seems like ever just gobbling, gobbling. I'm. I believe Parker did like a lie down tackle or something like that. And, um, I can't remember. Did I like pat the leaves or something at the end of that? Make it sound like I a think bird you did. Down? Uh, that that sounds or familiar. We, he, it was. It, I know it was very very quickly after that that yeah, it all because it's kind of running into my last turkey hunt. But anyways, not long after that, we hear turkey. Oh, you can hear him flying. And he swoops up in a tree over my left shoulder, like 22 yards from me. So when he's up in this big old pine, it feels like he's sitting over the top of you. So I'm stuck with this. I'm set up, you know, turned with my right shoulder to the tree, my left shoulder facing down where I'm thinking. Now he's almost behind my left shoulder. So he had had me somewhat twisted and I was fine. But he stayed in the tree forever, it seemed like. And he didn't make a noise. And the only thing we did every once in a while was scratch at the leaves. And after a while, you know, when you sit somewhere for so long, you start getting tired of hurting. Well, I was sliding down this tree because it had a little bit of a bank to it and a root. I'm like sliding down and feel my back go scoop, scoosh. So I'm trying not to make a big movement, but luckily there was a little bit of cover between he and I. And I was able, I had to drop my gun to the the ground. I got this big old 12 gauge that's super heavy. 
and I had to take my left hand and actually put in the ground to hold myself up. <laughs> and a little while later, the bird flies behind us. So he flew to one tree. Now he's flew to his second tree behind us. And now he's way behind me. And I could finally move and adjust just a hair, which was great. And he sat there for a while. I think he may have gobbled once. I don't think he gobbled any on that first tree. I think no, he just no, no. sat this there. Is the second tree where he's behind us. I think okay, he gobbled okay. yeah, one. Yeah. And that was a waiting game as well. And he flew to the next tree. And by this time, when I got shifted around for that third tree, I, I think I bumped my camera and it fell over. And the batteries died. I can see Parker over there. I'm pretty sure I heard him say that his batteries died. Sounds like a crap. We're not even getting a footage of this. So I'm, I got my gun like chest level. I have a, a tap cam on the front of my, my gun on the barrel. So I'm thinking I'm going to click this button and then just softly raise my gun and shoot so we can at least get the kill on camera if he flies out of the tree. And at this time, I hear Parker mumbling something behind me. Not sure what he's saying because I got a tree between me and him. And he starts cutting. And this bird just starts gobbling two or three times back to back. And he flew straight down. As soon as he hit the ground, he was right there. I clicked my tap cam. About the time I started raising my gun, boom! <laughs> <laughs> He flew down right in front of Parker's bead, and I was just like, so like, oh, dang. <laughs> I was like, I felt like I was like two seconds away of being able to pull the trigger. <laughs> this bird's just flopping. <laughs> so what he was, what I heard mumbling was him saying, whoever gets a shot needs to shoot because of how difficult this bird, how educated he was, which makes a lot of sense. And then when we got up there, this freaking turkey's got a double beard. He's <laughs> <laughs> like inch and a quarter spurs. Just freaking hoss of a bird. I measured, them, I measured them today. Um, one of them's like right a hair under inch and a quarter, and one of them's a hair over inch and a quarter. I knew they'd be close to inch and a quarter. Yeah. Yeah, I got but them all right today. I mean, the way he looked was like a... Just like a Osceola with the black wings. Yep. Had them tall, purple, red-looking legs. Just beautiful bird. Yeah. It was now, beautiful I, bird. It was fun. So, that, that's that's tough, but what were you trying to whisper to him, Parker? What I was saying to him when I, said, what I said was, whoever gets a shot needs to shoot him. Um, because what, what I, what I, from my perspective, here's what, and I've watched the, the Insta 360 footage of it. Cause my camera, my main camera died. Um, and I couldn't change the battery out because he was literally like gargoyling over us the whole freaking morning. And this, and this, yeah, this wasn't just a 20 minute, like a flight. Oh out. no, dude. He stayed up. He stayed up for a while, from what I understood. So I would say like typical fly down would probably be. 7:30 in Florida on 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 the time zone we were at maybe a little bit yeah, 7:35 I think 
Yeah. And and we he... didn't actually kill him until 8.30 when yep. his feet hit the ground. Um, but what... Well, we was on that bird at 6.50. We started moving on him at 6.50. So Somewhere Brett, around there. It's pretty early. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, we started moving on him. Before 7. Yeah, before 7. Anyway, so so the um, the thing that that I was watching on my, that I wanted to see on my 360 was to make sure that I wasn't just, like, seeing things. Like, from that perspective where I was at, what it looks like is Brett is sitting there with the gun in his, like, stuck. Not because he... Not for any other reason other than he's just kind of stuck like that because his bird has been hovering over him when he flew into that second tree. Uh, and then when he flew to the third tree, he was still like direct line of sight on Brett. And I thought he was just this way. Well, every time he moved, I was able to pivot pretty easily because Brett was probably on the best tree for the hunt that we thought we were going to have. I was on probably the more versatile, like level ground. Um, yeah, and the, and that's for you to be able to move, being the cameraman. Exactly, guess, exactly. Know. So, but every time the bird moved from tree to tree, I was following him, right? So I had my gun pointed his direction every single time. And so when he finally flew down, when I when I got him excited, what I knew was going to have to happen was he was going to have to get more excited than he was. He wanted to come down, but I feel like he had. He had done this game before, potentially, yeah. you know, maybe recently, maybe within the last couple of days, even like he wanted to come down and he believed that there was a hen over there enough to fly over there because of, I, I think, the the more soft, like real, real soft tree elps is a little more believable for a Florida bird. The Florida hens that I've heard are not super vocal, like they're yeah. they're pretty soft. They don't they don't just make a lot of racket. Anyway, so when he flew down, he flew down directly in my face, like right in my face. And he popped that head up real quick. And what I'm looking at is Brett being with the gun on the ground. It's like, if I get a shot, I'm going to shoot him because Brett's not going to be able to make that much of a movement if he flies down right here. Like, it just you're not going to have that amount of time with a turkey. And so... I was just going to shoot him as soon as he flew down. <laughs> and if we both shot at yeah. the same time, then cool. It's your bird or whatever. You know, I don't care. That bird just needed to, he needed to go to heaven that day. <laughs> yeah, you worked, you worked too hard to get in those situations to not kill a turkey. And that, you know, anybody I, I hunt with, I say, Hey, this is a group effort. It um, is. I don't, I don't care who kills the bird, but if it comes to my side, it's going to die. And I, and I went with a guy one time on his property and we, the goal was for him to kill a turkey. I was fine not killing a turkey, but he walked right down my gun barrel at 30 yards. And I couldn't, I couldn't shoot him because I was there for my, you know, for my buddy. Um, so, but you know, we could keep talking about turkeys. Um, let's try to get into some deer hunt. Let's try to I want to hear about, I, I want to hear about this rattling, you know, just a fancy rattle bag on the ground, you know. Brett, you don't know about that rattle bag. <laughs> no, heck no, not a rattle bag. Hey, I did find one of those on public this year, uh, just laying in the woods. Is that considered somebody, a shed? A modern shed? 
a plastic rattle bag. <laughs> That's a good a good win. All right, a very so, good win. So this is funny. So I have found a shed, right? I found a shed in Kentucky that I am pretty sure is a. I haven't cut into it to check, but I'm pretty sure it's just a rattling antler, like a plastic rattling antler that's been sitting out there forever. No, I swear. You got to take a picture of that. It's so light, like it's so stinking light. I can't. I. I don't know. I think it's got. They will dry out, and it doesn't have a. Uh, it doesn't have a brow tine, so it's almost like it's made for rattling. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I found two of those this year on public land, laying side by side where somebody left them in the woods. Did you think it was a shed? No. Oh. Well, Brett, you uh, you've been kind of getting into this. Like we said, you hunt in South Alabama a lot, in Florida a lot. One thing we know about those places is uh, it's tough hunting, and weather's not super great to you, but also it's super thick. Like, it's really stinking thick. And I imagine, is that kind of what got your wheels turning when kind of dipping into this style of public land hunting? Um, yeah, my style as in on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of your approach I would, that way. I would say that stemmed from, from all my out-of-season scouting. Like, just... I like to take a deer season, take that information. As soon as deer season is over, I go in and walk every trail I've seen deer on. I'm trying to figure out every detail. I want to know everything about the deer in my area. I want to know where they live, where they go. I want to have every trail that's in the piece of public map. I want to know my piece of public better than five other hunters who are in that same area put together. So, I started noticing that the mature deer were hanging in areas you just could not hunt traditional, like even in a, a saddle, you could not get in a tree. I mean, give, it was give just, me a, give me an example of like, you started noticing that the mature, like you, you made a, you made a separation there that the mature deer, the places that you were seeing, was this like you following those trails back into these areas? Well, yeah, I mean, it was following trails where I've seen them, but it was also finding all their sheds in there as well, and like these bedding areas. I like to hunt bedding areas, and not necessarily a buck bed, but an area that the deer seem to prefer to bed in, being uh, thick cutovers that are grown up and just really thick pines, you know, because everywhere in Alabama you got Everybody's planting pines, and you have uh, tons of cutovers on these WMAs where they log. And a lot of times there's, you know, with small planted pines, you can't get in a tree. And if you stand up in them, a lot of times you can't see. You had to get on the deer's level, and you can actually see in some of this stuff. And then, like, cutovers and stuff like that, obviously most of all the trees are cut. And the deer are finding there's no... I guess, human scent or pressure out in these places. And that's just where they're going naturally because they're not finding people there. I mean, I've also done that. And then a lot of times when I find an area I believe is good, and a lot of sheds and stuff, I put cameras on. 
and I like to verify what I think. And between doing that, I've actually learned to be able to trust myself pretty good on certain things. Explain and that. I've always, I, I wanna... I've always been places that I'm like, I wish I could hunt this. I would totally hunt this, but I can't. And there was a, uh, some people I've seen who talked about ground hunting. One guy you had on your show with Land Smathers on the podcast. I reached out to him some, just asking him certain questions and maybe different things to like sit on. Uh, different questions, different people. And also, I thought of two things going into the off season a few years ago that I felt like I was lacking in maybe per se like a weekend or something I really needed to work at. And that was, I was not confident being on the ground and I was not confident in calling. So I told myself that I was going to give Colin a try for a whole year, not just trying once or twice. I'm going to give it a real effort. So I studied up on it listen to other people, try to take some things away from them I thought I could use myself. And I told myself I was really going to give ground hunting a try uh, starting in 2021 season. And that's kind of just where it took off. I mean, the, the beginnings. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's so true. If you're going to hunt the southeast – you kind of have to know how to hunt these kind of places in the heart of them, not necessarily on the edges. And I, I find myself always being on the edges because of several things like self-filming. It's hard to self-film from the ground. It's hard to self-film from a tree. It's harder to do it from the ground. And and so I typically take that, that route. But I know exactly what you're talking about where you're – I always find it on tracks like after I shoot a deer. Um, and you kind of follow in his blood trail, especially if you get some of those longer blood trails, man, you start weaving in and out of this stuff and you're like, crap, dang, I didn't even know this was here. And you're just going in and out of it. Like there, there's a gigantic rub. I obviously didn't kill the best buck in here. And then you go a little bit further and you're like, golly, look at this crossing where all these 15 trails cross together. It's like when you shoot a deer and you go on the blood trail, it's a magic carpet or like a like a magical uh, trail. What's the the yellow brick road? It's the yellow yeah, brick road, and it's just things. leading you to all these places. You're like, how have I not been here? Um, and it's because I think, like what you kind of talked about, we train ourselves not to go into those places. Like, hey, this would be really cool if, if I could hunt it. But it's hard to convince yourself. What are some of the things that you did to convince yourself to really give it a shot? Like it was there something that you heard, something you saw, um, something that you learned that you're like, okay, I've absolutely got to try this. I mean, several things, but let me clarify something. Everything that I'm talking to you about is 100% bow hunting and 100% public. Uh, it's not gun hunting. I'm bow hunting pretty much. 95% of the time and 95% of the time public land. So I'm just setting that. Yeah. But yeah, but 
<sighs> I just feel like it's trying to get better. And I've seen other people who have had success doing it. And like you said, I found other people's deer that were like dead in certain areas, maybe that they didn't find. And it's really a telltale sign because a lot of times they like to run back to their bed. And mm-hmm. uh, you can find some really cool stuff by going on blood trails, seeing where they go and you know, just finding out exactly where they live. And you're also right about you don't want to go in there and blow it up. And that's one thing I still don't go in there to blow it up. That's why I put so much emphasis on at off-season scouting, mainly postseason scouting. You want to scout that area before season so you know it like the back of your hand. You know where all the um, um, X marks the spot type trails, where there's two, four, five, six trails coming together. You want to find them in spots that you can surgically enter without disturbing too many deer to be able to hunt is kind of what I'm looking for. Like maybe something that's just 50, 60 yards in and I've tracked all of them trails out and I'm like, okay, well, here's how I have to enter because access is key if you're going to do this as well. Because I mean, if they know you're there, it's, it's game over. So I'm you, doing you all are, the work an- during the off season. Do what? You're you're answering all my questions right now. I'm not even having to answer stuff. This is great. But I want to know all these trails. I'm walking all these places that I think are bedding there. It's like the places you're hunting, you're like, I don't want to go in there and blow my deer out. Maybe I have a 100-acre lease or something. I don't want to blow all these deer out. Well, I got maybe a three-quarter square mile area that I really home in on. I really want to know everything. So I don't want to blow the deer out of there. So I'm doing all this soon as season is over. When all the signs fresh, leaf covers out, you can see it easy. The weather's nice. You can really get out there and figure things out. And yes, it will not apply come opening day of season, but as your season progresses and pre-rut starts to come in and you know the majority of your season all this is going to apply and finding it during off season so you don't blow it up during season i feel like is is key of what i'm doing and i'm i'm not finding many spots i can i feel like i can ground hunt without blowing a lot of deer out so i have three spots right now that i feel like i can really get in deer hunt on the ground and do it, you know, three or four times a year and be safe with that. And I'm judging on which one to go just by the wind. I'm not going on an off wind because I'm bow hunting. I'm trying to get these deer close. And typically the area I'm hunting as well, to, I usually don't see the deer till they're within 30 yards of me. So it's really hard. Like the first year I got my butt whooped. I seen tons of deer, but I couldn't quite seal the deal. Like I had them like, I need two more steps here or three yards there. I'm like so close in 21 the first year. And I figured out 
kind of what I needed to do a little better. Um, I'm probably going over and beyond your question. No, it was, here's what we're <laughs> laughing about. We were great. laughing because like we both will have the hand. So for people who don't know, you probably don't know this. Uh, we have these little hand raising gestures that we use on zoom for whoever has the next question. Right. And like Matt will put it up. And then you'll keep talking a little bit more. Matt's like, well, freaking crap. You answered, you answered that one. So Matt <laughs> takes his down. So I put mine up. Literally, as soon as I put it up, you said exactly what I was the question I was about to ask. And I was like, okay, well. Uh, <laughs> Do you want to know more about saddle hunting? Well, you can go to tetherednation.com for all your saddle hunting needs. Tethered is for saddle hunters, by saddle hunters, and they're redefining ultralight hunting. If you know me, you know that I love to have a system for all of my hunting equipment, where everything works together, and we preach about it a lot on this podcast. When you buy from Tethered, you can rest easy knowing that all your gear is designed to work together as a system. Saddles, platforms, ropes, climbing sticks, and a ton of other great gear just for saddle hunting can be found by visiting tetherednation.com today. That's tetherednation.com. Check them out. Here's that. Um, but uh, that, that one of the things that I want you to maybe talk, expand a little bit more on um, is the the conditions in which you hunt these areas like this. Um, you mentioned surgically. You said you want to surgically insert yourself into those positions. And so obviously this can't be the type of place that you hunt a whole lot. Like when you when you say that you have just a few of these spots where this actually works in, how often are you actually hunting those spots? And, like, are you waiting for the perfect days to do it, or are you just like, hey, I have this day to hunt here, I'm going to hunt here? So, for me, I'll, I, I like to run, like, these areas, for instance, this area, just one particular area where I killed a deer on the ground this year, started probably, it originally started in 19 when I found a big shed in there. And then in 20, I put a non-cellular camera and let it run all year. So I had a whole year's worth of information. I pulled that camera, took that information and basically try to figure out when the best time of the year to be in there or maybe what conditions the deer were in there the most. And so what I found is around the rut, I found a two week span around the rut where the, the, the bucks that I'm after are really using this, these trails and, there's actually six trails in that particular spot that all come together and they're cruising in and out of it. A lot of times, two to three times a day. And so I seen that. Mm, I just lost my focus, but so I, I seen that. So I figured out a two week period. And also I noticed like for pines, for instance, like when bad weather's coming in, like really stormy, rainy and windy conditions, the deer are just in there. It's like they're just funneled, pushed, 
in those pines. It's, it's like where they want to be. And it's also what I capitalized on that deer I shot in there this year was actually earlier than rut, but it was in the right condition. So I'm only hunting it that two week period. I feel like the deer, I feel like I have a chance to shoot the type of deer that I'm after, which is a three and a half year old or older deer is kind of what I'm aiming for. I see you got your hand. So Brett, yeah, yeah. I've wanted to kind of jump into, I've got a scenario. So like I'm a listener, I'm interested in wanting to get into ground hunting. Um, we've covered a lot of, a lot of good topics and I've learned a lot from this. So I just want to kind of throw out a, a scenario of a spot I have and kind of get your take on it. Um, I hunted this place about two years ago. It's right alongside a big thicket that they like to bed in and chase in. And I'd hunt the edge like Parker talked about and that we talk about all the time. We, we hunt edges religiously. Like that's what we believe in. But a side of me said that I needed to get in this, the middle of that thicket. And I, I'd shot a deer and walked through there, you know, and saw a bunch of, a bunch of stuff in there, but it was, it wasn't a pond thicket. It was just an old natural region you know, thicket that's probably been, I don't know, four or five years old. Not not stupid crazy. So say I'm gonna go in there bow hunting. With a bow you're very limited on say, you know, shooting lanes, what you can shoot through in these thickets. Are you finding kind of an a little bit of an opening inside of these thickets to be able to sit up on or are you just setting up on these trails? Yeah, so it is a little bit of an opening. And I'm not just setting up on a a trail. I'm setting up on multiple trails coming together where yeah. I'm going I'm going to increase my odds by three to four times depending on how many trails are there. But I also run a camera in there for one whole year to get the information I need to use it for the next year to know kind of what I need yeah. to know going into that. And I would yeah, also suggest you get out there right now and scout it all and figure out where that opening is and once you find that spot you really want to hunt start mapping your trail your deer trails and figure out how you can come how you can access that spot from wherever you had to park and uh, what wind you had to have and access it where the wind is going to be you know you're going to be walking into the wind but yeah, that's the keys. You got to figure that out now. That I like how you you talked about putting the camera out for a whole year. I've I've this is my second year doing that, and it's it's like you said, you can find that span of when those deer are in there the most. And say you had three or four cameras out each year, you're gaining three or four new spots for the following year that you have yep. you know down to the T uh, information on on what's in there but you, you you talked earlier about you know you you wanted to set aside a year to really focus on ground hunting as well as as calling and i myself i i mean i i may carry around a little bleak can you know though an asterisk can just just because that's you know that's been talked about in the outdoor industry you know have, have your doe asterisk can whatever but i want you to kind of like you know tell us your what you first started out calling with that you will never call with again. Uh, I, ho I hope you have something like that. 
and then you know get into what you found found out works here in Alabama because I know Alabama is totally different than a Midwest state where you can be a lot more aggressive and it's kind of how we talk with turkeys you know the calling can be different per state so you know let's let's jump into that and kind of give us a rundown of how how you went about it so I guess one thing I used a long time ago was like this rattling bag and uh, just think back on watching all these Midwest hunters or they're just <laughs> crashing these horns like like just thinking about it now it's like when you originally hit them so loud you probably just ran everything <laughs> off but right um, um here what what I found that works for me uh what I used to rattle with is I actually found sheds off of this property the year before and 2020, 2021. So every year when I find fresh sheds that are dropped, I use them. If they're somewhat in the right size around that, I would say 90 to 100 inch deer, you know, somewhere around there. Yeah. Maybe a three year old deer. Real uh, quick, Brett. Real quick, have you ever found the sheds and rattled in that deer and killed him? So, no, but. I did find I did find the deers the sheds that I was using to call in these bucks in 2021. I actually killed that buck. I didn't rattle him in, but I killed him, and yeah. I was calling in all his buddies with his sheds. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That is cool. Yeah, so that, that that'd be a cool one. So I mean, that's what I'm looking for for rattling horns is some fresh sheds within two years or so that's not definitely not sun bleach you want to find them pretty quick i just feel like it sounds really realistic and that's the horns there's deer had in there so i mean doesn't get much more realistic than that and i have a grunt call matter of fact i think i have it right here i have a i think it's called a a hattie bow or something grunt call you can blow in one end and the other end, you can turn around and you can suck in. And I really like that the part where you suck in because it's a real light grunt. Quit laughing, Parker. It's a real light grunt. It's kind of like turkey hunting with your soft calling, how it sounds yeah. so realistic. Well, the softer part on this is just really <laughs> deer. I mean, it just speaks deer. So I like using I, I think Parker that wants grunt you to call. Parker wants you to suck on it and give us a, uh, an example. Listen, I don't care how old I am. If I ever stop laughing when I hear a man say, then there's another side that you can suck on it. And I prefer the side that you suck for the softer stuff. I mean, like, maybe, maybe I just have the maturity of a 12-year-old. I don't know. But... God, I can't yeah, be the only person that thought that was hilarious. It, it, it gets him every time. <laughs> Brett, don't feel bad. It's not so, just you. So, I mean, when I started out with it, like just rattling was like with a bag or something. Super loud and noxious. Uh, always from an elevated position. And then when you did your grunt call, you, I would always do more of a traditional, like you see in the Midwest, because that's basically all you would see back in the day, like when we were growing up, I would hear 
these loud grunts or like these crazy grunt roars or you just these extended grunts and what i've found that's really really worked is just really soft grunts more like a just a tendon grunt where you just burp 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 you know Mm -hmm. nothing real loud a lot of times in uh it really works well on the ground and in those thick places because that's naturally where the deer are going to be doing that more often and it just sounds more natural. You have to remember in a tree, you're in a tree. So that could potentially not be very natural. So I've I've grunted up deer from the tree, but I've only rattled up one deer past two years in the tree, but the majority of my colony is really working on the ground. And I think a lot of that has to do with the areas I'm in. If you're not, I mean, it's, if you're not calling in the right areas, you're not going to get a reaction. So being in some more thicker stuff around bedding areas where a deer naturally has to, come into an area to actually see that deer it's kind of like turkey hunting where you're hiding the hen but it's kind of like you're you're hiding this doe you got just somewhat think about it like that where they actually have to come in to investigate but you also have to be by that thicket or those bedding areas to really work because if they can see down there they're just like a turkey gonna hang up they're gonna look from afar you may not even know they're there so in the cutovers and the thicker pines on the ground, it's like it really works, but it don't always work. Just I would say maybe fifteen percent of the time it actually works. So that sounds like a low number, but when it works, I mean it is awesome, especially when you're trying to self film because you can start your camera, do your rattling or your grunting, whatever you're about to do. And your camera's already rolling. You're ready. You know, like you have a 360. I don't have one. I just have an action cam and some stuff. So I had to kind of get my stuff rolling a little earlier, but um, so, it also works the best in pre-rut and rut. Go ahead. I, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So you said 15... 15- Fifteen percent of the time, it works. Like, or you gave it that yep. number. So, first off, I don't think that I would not call that a a low number for sure. When you're talking about deer, you know, like any any percentage is is a pretty high percent because you just never can. I I know what you're talking about though. Like, there are certain things that I do that I'm like I could probably put put a percentage on how many times this works, but that's also being pretty conservative with how many, like I'm going to be in those areas in the, in the time frames where these things are going to work the best. Right. So, um, I, I want to know, Brett, you've hunted a lot in Missouri, kind of Midwestern type areas, and you've hunted a lot, obviously in Alabama. Is there a, is there a drastic difference in the way that you call, from one region to the other? 
or what you feel like the deer do from one region to the other in those in those thicker areas? Mm, I don't call any different. Maybe I rattle and maybe grunt a little louder in the Midwest because it's a little more open. So you're wanting to reach a deer that you may not be able to see, but it's just out of sight. So you have to be a little louder. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. But when you're in a thicket, you can only see 30 yards. You don't want to blow their ears off. You want to sound realistic. Um, So I don't call a whole lot different, but if I do, it's a little louder in the Midwest. Um, I would say, though, like when I'm rattling, <laughs> I've actually tried rattling and grunting through that the whole year. Because when I told myself I was actually going to give this a real try, like calling, I'm going to try it all the way through season. I want to see how the deer react. If I can get any deer to do anything before I just completely just debunk calling. Because I've just never really had anything work with it very well. Um, so I did it early season. I had some does with some fawns out feeding. Just did some soft little grunts. And they didn't really even pay much attention. The big doe, she picked her head up and moved her ears around and went right back to feeding. I hit it again. She looked and just kept feeding like it did not bother her at all. Just doing soft grunts. I've but when you're doing this, when you're doing this, it sounds like you're expecting like a pretty quick, a pretty quick result. Like if it's going to work, it's going to work quick, right? Like, is that what I'm kind of putting together? Pretty much. Yeah. Yes. So, when you're on the ground, it's, when I'm in on the ground, it's happening quick. So it's nothing. It's not any of this like sit and wait thirty minutes, and no, or an hour, and he's going to come through at some point looking. No. So what I actually have been doing, being I'm bow hunting on the ground, when as soon as I I've had them while I'm still calling, come running in on me and like bust me, like I can't move. I have one two years ago come running in so fast that when I heard him, I looked up. He was like 20 yards and just stopped. And I'm froze. And he's in there just looking around and I can't move. And I have one this year. I called. I heard something before I could put the antlers down. I look over to my left and there's a small buck standing 10 yards from me. I'm like froze. And the deer actually gets out front of me where I had enough time to set my antlers down and get ready. But normally when I rattle, I try not to do it longer than like 30 seconds, which seems like a long time. But when you're actually doing it, uh, 30 seconds comes by real quick. And as soon as I set Mm. the antlers down, I have my hand on the bow with my release clip in the ready position with tension basically on my string. And I, I count to 60 seconds because typically when that happens, they're going to be there within 60 seconds. 
I've had them take a little longer before. I've had them take almost two minutes, but that was very, very rare. So I had to be ready. As soon as I see legs, I'm draw back. And I may not know what the deer is yet, but I have to draw back before it gets right up on me so I don't get busted. And what I figured out between the first year and the second year is back cover is a hundred times more important than front cover. I mean, picture it like this. You have something in front of you, which I could demonstrate to y'all being we're on Zoom, but you're behind it. If you move, it's kind of like being skyline. Yeah, they can't see uh, depth perception well, but when you're behind it and you move, you have light behind you. So they can see you move a lot easier to whether you're in front of it and they have bad depth perception and it's real dark, thick, there's not the light getting through there and you move, they could tell something happened, but they don't know if that's a limb just blowing from the wind because you're not skyline and they have bad depth perception. So you're better off having a lot of cover behind you than in front of you. And that was that was key. What's going your from one year to the next? What's your uh like? What's your sitting position, right? So are you just sitting there? Do you have like a gobbler chair or a seating cushion? Like what are you using? Something similar, yeah. So the first year I used my predator platform and just hung it real low, so I didn't have to buy anything else. I just hung it real low on the tree, like a foot off the ground, and I have like one of those little cushions that's got a handle where you can hold it, a little mm-hmm. square cushion. And I just ran it over the post. So it's sitting on top of the platform. So I had a little bit of cushion. That's what I used the first year. And what I found that I really liked the second year is actually a, I believe it's some type of like rock climbing chair. And it folds up into a bag that's about a foot long and about, six inches around it folds up real small so you could just throw it on your back or throw it in your bag and be real light put it together when you get there and it doesn't have sides to it but it's got a back it's got like these little holders in it so you have nothing around your arms you just basically have a back that's below your shoulder so if you had to turn in the chair and draw your draw arm will always be above the back of it. So it's not restricting you in any type of way. And you're only sitting maybe 12 inches off the ground. It works out really, really well. It's super light. So I have transitioned to that uh, this year. And I also practice shooting, you know, like that as well during the off season to make sure there wasn't any thing going to affect my shooting or make sure I could draw my bow back and just make sure everything was good. I tried turning in a chair and shoot for different positions to try to work out any kinks beforehand. God, this is awesome. I'm you you're gonna have me sitting on the ground in a thicket waiting <laughs> on a sixty second result. <laughs> now it now say it say it doesn't happen within that sixty seconds. Are you waiting a certain amount of time before you call again? Uh are you repositioning kind of No, I'm not repositioning. I am I will 
try to recall basically like every hour. Yeah. Uh, just depending. Just really, it just really de- depends kind of on what you want to do, but if the weather is like primo, like super cold, you know, the deer's out running, I might do it a little earlier. I might do it 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And it definitely seems to work the best the first two hours of the morning or the last 30 minutes of life. I have had it work during the middle of the day as well, but it seems to be the best for me, you know, just maybe what I'm doing or the way I'm hunting, but it seems to be the best in the mornings and usually the first two hours. So as soon as I can see good enough to shoot with my bow, I'm rattling. Because typically that's going to be the primo time and then i'll probably do it 30 minutes later on that first one and then maybe an hour later yeah i've I've noticed a lot of times like early morning walking in i'll walk in on like a buck chasing a doe pretty hard in the dark you know grunting doing this thing and then right there within that first hour of daylight you know he's he's in there grunting you know pushing does around kind of deal Mm -hmm. uh so that that you know solidifies exactly what you're saying why while they're going there, I think they're you're catching them, you know, they're getting a little too excited and they're staying out a little longer, you know, into the more from you know, early morning in the dark to early morning with a little bit, bit of daylight and you're able to capitalize on their vulnerability right there. Yeah, and I'm also pretty much when I'm ground hunting, I'm in their bedroom, essentially. Like I'm where they wanna be. Like they may not be right there, but I'm around it to where when I rattle, I'm probably reaching a couple bucks, you know. Yeah. I've had I've had multiple I've had more than one come in before. Um, yeah, and that that goes to show you, you know, when you're calling, you don't know what's in the area or what's what's gonna walk by within that time or how far away these deer were when they heard it. Because you know, these deer aren't just stationary. They're constantly moving, especially in a thicket where they feel safe. Um, so kind of what you said, you know, they're pretty active first thing in the morning, you get it. But like, you know, say an hour where you go to call again, you, there may be a totally different deer coming through that hasn't, he hasn't heard your calling sequence yet. And then hears it and Hey, it's game on. Yeah. I think the most I've ever called up in one day was three different books. Uh, Two of them come in together, and then an hour later, I, I rattled again and called in a totally different buck. And all these deer were deer that I was going to shoot, and the two that come in, I was drawn back. I needed them to take two steps, and the last one that come in was a, a nice buck, and he stayed just behind some kind of some grass stuff growing up. I need him to make a two yard, two yards over to get my shot on him. God. Uh, so there's a lot of heartache in it as well. Like you get so close, you'll get busted. There's a lot of heartache that can come with it. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to be like, when I get home from ground hunting, because some days I'll sit there all day and it mentally wears on you when you're bow hunting because the whole time I'm hunting, the riser is in my hand, 
and my releases clicked on the whole time I'm sitting there. Like you just had to be mentally strong, like probably like I wasn't with the turkey, but I was deer hunting. <laughs> you had to really be mentally strong and sit there and just be ready because when one comes in in that particular area that I'm hunting, like like I said, it's thirty yards or less when you see them, you have to get drawn back. It's super hard to get drawn back when they're in there because a lot of times they're just walking at a steady pace or not feeding around or you know, walking. So the chances of them stopping and maybe looking around or giving you a couple of seconds to get drawn back, it's, it's slim. So, I mean, it's not for the pain of heart. It will break your heart and it's mentally tough, but you can do it. It's it's definitely sounds doable. I mean, the more you the more content that comes out about it, I mean, you kind of get. I, I I tried it a couple times this year, um, during bow season, and I mostly had the heartbreak. Um, I got busted several times on that one hunt. I don't know by I don't know what by it was just like Matt. I don't know if you remember that day when I went out and I sat on the ground. And I was like, screw this by like 30 yeah, minutes yeah, after it's daylight. A, <laughs> I was it's like, a perfect, perfect day. And I'm out here sitting on the ground, you know, beautiful <laughs> morning. I'm, I'm walking around at seven o'clock. What am I doing? I remember it. God. <laughs> I was like, I felt like I ain't never hunted a deer in my life. I got busted like five times before daylight. It was just like, it was bad, man. And I thought I was, I, I, I know a lot about this area, Brett. Like I've hunted here a lot. And I thought I was surgically inserting myself into the right area. Like, I hadn't hunted the place all season. It's like, it's a freaking cold front coming through, and it's a beautiful, clear morning. Like, every, all the history I have with this area, this is going to be a great day for deer movement. I How about you win? I was not wrong that it was a great day for deer movement. Um, but it was a it was a better day for deer moving away from me, is is more what it seemed like. And I don't know, like I I was really paying heavy attention to the thermals and to the wind direction. Like I don't hunt this spot unless the wind direction is correct. And it was it was right that day. I don't. It was something about me going into that, the heart of that where I usually go more perimeter. Like, going into the heart of the area really dang messed me up. It messed me up real bad on that day. Had you scouted that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew this whole place. Okay. Yeah, I, I know. Thought I, was gonna, I thought I was going to catch you slipping, man. No, man. <laughs> no, I knew. I've, I know this whole, I've hunted it for, I don't know, four years now. It's about 200 and something acre piece of public that's there, and it's, Brett, it's the spot that I was telling you that um, looks very similar to the videos that I've seen of the deer that you've killed. Um, Matt, it's the place where I had that cell camera at. Gotcha. Right? So it's like you can see it. You can see the pine thicket back there in it. Brett, you got your hand raised. So how how did these deer bust you? Explain that. I don't know. Like, did they wind you? Did they come from behind you? No, they like... came from in front of me. They were in front of me, and I would see them. They would just run in and then run out. Like, they'd leave. 
So I was like, well, crap, maybe I need to change my position a little bit. So I kind of moved over just a hair to where I was maybe a little bit further back, trying to get it to where I could get them when they kind of come into the opening a little better. And had another one come in and do the same exact thing. Um, I mean, just real quick, with that in mind, you know, besides having the great back cover, no, I guess, tip I figured out um, that just come to mind was between my first year hunting that area to my second year, I had to completely move my setup um, because I had a few of the main trails when the deer come in they were like quartering towards me and i would always seem to get busted so i I had to take all that knowledge as well from me hunting it first year and figure out how could i set up where when the deer come in they're not quartering to me they're not walking straight to me but they're walking more parallel with me per se like more broadside or walking away from me like something where their eyes aren't as focused to the area that, that I'm at. Mm-hmm. I had to had to figure that out as well the hard way, which is, you know, something maybe to keep in mind when you're trying to find that right spot to uh, set up at. Or when you do find a spot, just think about all those things. And yeah, I just took a bunch of dead falling. It wasn't a perfect, it wasn't a perfect spot to set up when I first did it. But I took a bunch of dead fall and I stacked up and made it where I had great back cover. Took all yeah. those dead limbs and dead logs and then just uh, saplings and stuff like that and put in there and just made my back cover where I needed it. Did you also, um, did you also add any, like, are you using any front cover at all? only thing I used for front cover was this like little burn up pine I laid on there was a one big tree right here and I laid kind of in a 45 across the front of me and then there was a decent sized log that was about three foot long that I leaned up on the other tree like maybe two tiny 45s in front of me but not really at all any cover in front of me Besides what other trees that are naturally in there. Yeah. Well, man, I, I, I think we covered a lot right here in this little short amount of time talking about finding the spot, putting yourself in there, setting the spot up, things to use to, to make it a little bit more doable. Uh, and I feel like we covered a whole lot. Um, I do know that, um, Brett, you, like I said, I, I chose you for, for my team, right? Uh, and that's for good reason. Like a lot of these, a lot of these, um, Brett, Brett is the real deal. That's how, that's how I'm trying to say this. Uh, Brett's not out there to get famous. Brett's not out there to do a whole lot of, um, whatever, like, like, but Brett is a wily freaking woodsman. I've watched him in the Turkey woods, looking at deer sign. Um, he's all over the place. And one of the things that I have been really impressed by is Brett is your note taking, like taking these notes from the woods, all that, like you were able to, you were able to go through Matt. I don't know if you noticed this, but he was going through like that year. I saw like three and that year I saw like Mm. six or whatever. He's got it all written down. And I think 
Brett, what 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 made you start doing that? And did you start doing it whenever you were doing this more like surgical procedure style of hunting? Yeah, basically. So <clears throat> just I've heard other people talk about just writing things down and looking at it later. And I just that was something that in, interested me that I wanted to do. And I was kind of two years wanting to do it and I didn't. Um, so 2019 and 20, I really would like to rope stuff down, but you know how we are. We just throw stuff to the back burner. I didn't do it. I did mornings, afternoons. I did this for stand hunting. And then I did a separate column for ground hunting morning and afternoons. Then basically when I got done with a hunt, I put how many does, how many bucks I seen. And then basically at the end of the year, I put like the total numbers of sits I had, total number of just deer. And then I kind of just did that with how many deer did I see per sit. And I just, you know, it's pretty simple. And as you go through, you'll find more stuff that you may want to add to the list that you can. But, you know, those are the few things that I've wrote down and just kept up with um, 100% from 21 last year and this year. What What would you say um, from, obviously, I would imagine you, you saw some sp- pretty good numbers from ground hunting versus stand hunting was were the numbers like drastically different of the number of deer that you were seeing and also was it different from the amount of mature deer that you were seeing so just 2021 for instance i felt like the number of deer I seen or see it, may have been a little bit more, but pretty equal to, to my stand hunt. But what I did notice was the buck numbers skyrocketed. Like a big difference in how many bucks I seen versus yeah. does when it comes to ground hunting. Like it was... I went from stand hunting or seeing, you know, majority does to when I'm on the ground, I'm seeing majority bucks. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, getting up up into the cover, getting up into where bucks are going to be at, not necessarily high deer traffic areas, right? Like, is that kind of how it usually works out? Like where you find that the most mature deer are at, it's, that's not really around the population. Well, I would say uh, where I'm finding mature deer is where where others aren't hunting. Yeah, where the least amount of human presence. So it's not necessarily and that could be that could be a mile back. That could be that could be the first food plot on the left on the walk in. You know, just you had to put your home. You had to do the work and put your time in to have that to figure that out. Yeah, to find those "quote unquote" honey holes. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what we're looking for here. Throw some numbers with y'all just to entertain me. Two thousand twenty-one, Alabama public. 
106 hours of off-season scouting. I did 45 total sits, 75 deer. Equaled out to be 1.6 deer per sit. Uh, deer from a tree stand, 48 does, 27 bucks. See, so majority does. When I ground hunted, I did six morning hunts on the ground and three afternoon hunts. Seen 11 bucks and six does. Huh. Majority in the morning? Every one of them in the morning. I didn't see nothing the three afternoons. Interesting. Um, I had 2021, I had eight opportunities. What I'm labeling opportunity is a three and a half year old or older within 40 yards of me. How many opportunities? Eight. Eight. Eight opportunities. And then 2022, this past year, I had 89 hours of off-season scouting, 60 miles for Alabama. For Florida, I had 58 hours and 32 miles off-season. I did 30 total hunts in Alabama, and I seen 30 deer. So as you can see, the numbers drop. That's one deer per sit. And I put that towards there's so much out-of-state pressure now that there's probably more out-of-staters hunt than local people, the public. Hmm. But I seen uh, on the ground, I seen 11 bucks on the ground and zero does. And I hunted the exact same six mornings and three afternoons. And then I had seven opportunities last year. So out of in Alabama, out of six, out of six sits, six mornings, three evenings, you had seven opportunities on the ground, or that seven opportunities altogether for the whole year. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, but I seen ten bucks and six morning hunts. Gosh. And then, so here's the crazy numbers. Florida public, six morning hunts. I seen 10 does and nine bucks. Six afternoons, nine does, two bucks. 2.5 deer per sit. A total of 19 does and 11 bucks and 12 sits. You like that 11 number on bucks, don't you? You're just going to keep seeing 11 bucks. It's crazy. Seen way more deer in Florida than I did in Alabama. Well, we need to be moving all them non-residents over to Florida, or over, yeah, over to Florida. Florida's great. Yeah, I think y'all go, y'all go. Florida's the best deer hunting in the southeast. Go on down. <laughs> well, Brett, man, I appreciate you coming yeah. on. We're uh, we're running up here on time, and. We got. I don't know if you're turkey hunting in the morning, but I'm turkey hunting in the morning. I think Matt's turkey hunting in the morning. I'm definitely not. I got to work. You gotta go make that money. Somebody's got to work. Yep. 
That's right. It ain't going to be me tomorrow. <laughs> it's going to be you. All right, Brett. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. You can keep up with Southern Ground Hunting by following us on Facebook or Instagram or subscribing to the YouTube channel. And you can be sure to check us out at southerngroundhunting.com to pick up some of our merch, read some blog articles, and all that good stuff. I truly hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and we'll see you here again next week. Remember that God gave you dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the earth. So go out and exercise that dominion. We will talk to you next week.